No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. Yeah, it looks like a fucking party. Join Garrett. You can do nothing against the master. Matt. Who, me? And Adam. I don't want your blood. <sighs> but we want your flesh. As they review all adaptations of King's second novel, Salem's Lot. You kids ought to know better than to be speeding around Jerusalem's lot at night. All the way through the brand new version produced by James Wan and directed by Gary Doberman. I'm not leaving. Continue coming back as the boys continue looking at all the popular authors' on-screen adaptations in publication order. I'd love to. So get away from that window. Look at me, teacher. The Salem's Lot Retrospective begins now. Do yourself a favor. Stay clear. Salem's Lot original air dates November 17th and November 24th 1979 budget on this was four million dollars and this was directed by Toby Hooper Goudreau we know Toby Hooper pretty well don't we (laughs) at least we think we know him he's that friend who showed up to the party he had beer he bought steaks we had a great time and then he said guys I gotta go home my wife is calling me and then we never saw him again and he left us with a bunch of degenerate drunks who I never want to party with ever again. Wow. Let's talk about spoiling a review. Oh, Salem's Lot. This was a movie that, well, before I get to the movie, let's talk about the book a little bit. Now, I'm not going to talk about the book too much because, like Matt, I have plans to put some stuff that enhances these reviews on Patreon. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about this. So the paperback edition of this book earned an advance of $500,000. So... Stephen King had to split that with Doubleday. But this would be the last book he would write before he became rich enough to write full-time. Carrie had been out. Let's not forget that we're doing these movies out of order. And there's a reason for that, which I'll throw to Matt here in a bit. But this was right after Carrie. And right after this, he was able to quit his teaching job and he could go ahead and write full-time. Matt, why exactly are we doing these so out of order? Because you told me to. Besides that, because our original plan was to do this in publishing order, but there's a reason for why we are doing these movies at this time, correct? Yeah, so when I initially put the schedule together, this coincided with the seemingly timely release of a new Salem's Lot movie that's going to be an official theatrical release, because this first one is television. Director, it's already been shot, but the release date, what a surprise, punted from its March-slash-April release date. And we figured, rather than have to come up with a new series to do, to fill the slot, let's just do Salem's Lot pre-existing, and then whenever the new one comes out, we'll slate that in for a week. And we think we have an idea of what's going to fill its spot for April, but more to come on that very soon. Now, Adam, you're not a big fan of King's work. Were you familiar with Salem's Lot before you watched it for this podcast? Only on a very surface level. Knew it was a book. Knew kind of what it was about and I knew that there had been a couple different permeations of it that was about it yeah there are a couple versions of this we're going to get next week oh my god I'm not going to start discussing next week until next week because next week's movie is indescribable once we finally get to it but then after next week's movie which came out in the 80s, we're going to get the other TV version of this, which aired on TNT with Rob Lowe, the 2004 version. And then, as Matt said, we are going to get to the theatrical version whenever the hell it gets to come out. But to talk about this movie, the first time I ever saw this movie was I would go to my grandparents' house in Oregon quite frequently. It would be about once or twice a year we would go. We'd take a car trip or... I would fly by myself. But on this particular time, we took a car trip out there. And basically what my parents would do is they would take me to the video store to rent a couple movies just so that them and my grandparents could play cards and keep me out of the way. So when I went to the video store, I rented two movies on this particular time. This one and the first Hellraiser movie. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> and this was in the video store. It was a very ominous cover. And we had Toby Hooper, whose name I definitely knew. Even as a child, I knew that this guy had done Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And at that time, he had already done Poltergeist as well. So I thought I knew what I was going to get. I watched this particular tape, and this tape, it should be said, this was a version that they made just to up the gore a little bit. It was a slimmer version. It was about two hours long, and that, that was a different version than what originally aired on TV. But it definitely captivated me. I was frightened by this. There are a couple scenes I'll definitely get to. And then once I read the book, oh my god, even though I had seen the movie, it scared the crap out of me. Now, Goudreau, had you read this book before? No. Is the short answer. It's been a very blind spot for me because it's one of his more famous books. And I like the idea that he did vampires, you know, one of the classic monsters in both literature and movies, in the same way that he did for werewolves upcoming with Silver Bullet about 22 years from today. So I, I will get on it in due time once I have the time to actually sit down and read the book. Yeah, it's definitely worth reading, and we'll definitely discuss differences. But let's get to what the original version was. So what this movie was going to be. I read an interview with Toby Hooper in a uh, Stephen King encyclopedia that I had that I've mentioned in previous podcasts. It's called The Shape Under the Sheet. And in that interview, Toby Hooper did say that this was actually going to be a feature-length movie with John Voight as the lead character and Bill Friedkin producing because William Friedkin, he kind of took Toby Hooper under his wing for a bit. They were going to do a few projects together, and none of that really came through. And once this came across Toby Hooper's desk, he thought he would want to take this on. They got a writer of Peyton's Place to do the script after they had rejected a script done by the guy who wrote the movie version of Carrie, believe it or not. But Richard Kobritz is the producer of this. He decided that, you know what, this would work better as a TV series. Which is weird, because in the 70s, Goudreau, correct me if I'm wrong, and we'll get to more 70s stuff when we get to The Incredible Hulk later on in this podcast history, but, I mean, the 70s wasn't really a good time for TV, was it? Well, depends in what circles you were in. As far as doing, like, big event movies of this scale, because made-for-TV movies, there weren't a whole lot to be perfectly honest, and certainly the ones you've got were not always of quality. So when you look at this movie in its place and its time, it was a huge deal. And getting Toby Hooper fresh off a movie that garnered both praise and controversy was an interesting direction to go for yet the only second adaptation of Stephen King and right after Carrie. So it, it was a big freaking deal. And it should be said, this was actually right after he had done Eaten Alive, which is a alligator movie with Robert England, And if that tickles your fancy, go for it. But I remember not really liking that one at all. <laughs> one of the things that Hooper also said in that interview was, in working in TV, there's actually a big scene affected that I'll talk about when I get there in the course of this movie. But also in that interview, Hooper said that he was told by standards and practices that he couldn't show a corpse with its eyes open. And he maneuvered around that by saying that vampires aren't dead, they're undead. Those were the kind of things that directors of things like this had to get their hands around in order to do something on TV back in the 70s. So, Adam, by the time you put this on, what exactly were you expecting? Um... Expecting that I was going to sit through a three-hour, five, three-hour, ten-minute Stephen King miniseries again. <laughs> but, you know, to be fair, I'm, well, not to be fair this time. I wish it was on TV. Um, <laughs> when it comes to Stephen King, I think I've been friendly to the TV adaptations pretty heavily. So, if anything, I went, you know, when it comes to the miniseries, I've been fairly favorable. I knew that this was about vampires. I'm a huge fan of vampire lore. I think I read Bram Stoker's when I was in fifth grade for the first time. So miniseries, vampires, it had my interest that way, and I was intrigued to what it would be. And I know Salem's Lot has a pretty big history following. I know it's one of your favorite books, I believe. So when it comes mm -hmm. down to it, I was intrigued and ready. I wasn't angry that I was having to watch this like I've had to on some other King adaptations. And that's fair, because King has said that he wanted to modernize Stoker for this. And I know, Adam, I mean, just growing up with you, I know you're a big Anne Rice fan. You really see a lot of what the influence was when you watch this, don't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's direct references, direct things that are pulled from specific literary materials that are used in this one here. So, yeah, for sure. And we'll, I'll get to those similarities when I get to the review of the book, which I'm going to do, and also throughout the course of this film, because there's definitely similarities there, too. 
We start off with a faraway shot of a church in Guatemala and some very foreboding music as we see a boy and a man say that they found us. And a jar glows blue, a surefire sign of things to come. Adam, what were you thinking at this point? We're getting an epilogue in the beginning here, right? Yeah, I wouldn't know that for three hours down the road. (laughs) (laughs) I've... I mean, I'm church, holy water, what the, huh? All right, I'm ready. Wait a minute. Now we're going two years ago. So I was, I was in, but then I was kind of perturbed that it was just a quick little tease for something that wouldn't get referenced until much, much later. This felt so superfluous. It might as well have been a bookmark. I forgot this by the time eight hours later when we got to the <laughs> ending of this movie that this was actually the prologue and the epilogue simultaneously. Not mm-hmm. saying it's terrible, but it doesn't really bear any weight on the overall thoughts on the movie if you cut it or not. So to me, that's a sign that it's not good because I could do without it and it doesn't affect my overall thought on the movie. We get some opening credits and a shot of the countryside as a car pulls up and we see that it is Maine two years earlier. David Soul gets out of the car and just looks at the house. And if there's one thing this miniseries gets right about the book... This house is a major character. And you know what, Goudreau? I I had flashes of The Shining as I watched this because King would do this two years later when he wrote The Shining because in that book, the hotel is actually a character too, right? Yeah, there's definitely a sense of foreboding dread whenever they cut to this house. It's not like the house does anything outside of catch a fire at the end. It's not like it's really possessed or anything, but because it's on a hill, it always feels like it oversees the town. So I, I attribute this to the book, even though I haven't read it. So I, I like that aspect. They picked a rustic-looking house that might as well be straight out of Amityville. So good job by the production team to get this scouted and located. Yeah, this house up here, it's you know kind of foreboding. And I wrote down one thing right away. This house, well, 12 rooms, 12 vacancies. Like it's a psycho house sitting up on this little hill. Yeah, definitely has psycho vibes going. The thing about this house is it is a bigger character in the book. In the book, the vampires kind of act as this year's evil because evil comes from this house. Next year, it'll be something else instead of vampires. And we'll get to the Ben Mears character, what he sees in this house. It is haunted in a way, but there's so many things going on within this house. And King does a decent job of outlining that in the book. Here, we just get that it's vampires, and that is not the way it is in the book. So just keep that in mind when you start reading it. It's a shame they left it out because I think there'd be definitely an interesting story to weave through here that many things had happened through this house through the years. Mm-hmm. Because it's hinted at, we get a line here or there, but it's left for our own devices to determine whether or not something did. And that's a shame, because I do think there's a Salem's Lot house story to be told. We see a guy in black get into a car and drive off while looking at him. And then we see Ben. He drives right by a sign for Salem's Lot, as well as the boy that we saw in the beginning. And his hair is a little bit different. And then we're seeing the overseer of an antique store getting ready for the grand opening as Ben Mears makes his way in, saying that he needs a place to stay for a bit. You mean Needful Things is opening up here in Salem's Lot? Leland Gaunt is a character in this movie, apparently. (laughs) I am so glad you guys picked up on that, because that was a note for later. Great catch, by the way. Now, Ben Mears is played by David Soule, a guy who we spoke about just last month when we talked about Superman. He almost got that role. But I solely know him as Hutch from Skarsky and Hutch. <laughs> and Matt, we'll be talking about him again later this year as he was also in one of the Dirty Harry movies. But this guy, in the book, he's described as an intellect, but he can also hang out with the blue-collar crowd. <sighs> I see him hanging out with the blue-collar crowd. I don't see an intellect here. Well, of course he's written as an intellect because he's a writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if, if there's a super, you might as well put a cape on him as far as Stephen King is concerned. He's okay, but yeah, I don't get intellect. And it's amazing because right away when he's referred to as a stranger, this town is like, oh, I'm not a stranger. I've been here before. I'm like, are you this motherfucker? I just, sometimes they come back this movie as well. <laughs> this guy's returning to this town to fight evil. <sighs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure if you noticed this, Adam, but there's a lot of parallels and repetition in Stephen King's story. Yeah. <laughs> you don't say. Especially the early works. You'll see a lot of authors. <laughs> it's very ironic that the guy's last name has soul in it because I feel like that's what this character is lacking. And to be honest, I'm very happy this guy didn't get Superman. And I kind of wish Christopher Reeve took this role as well. 
Now, that's not a bad call, actually. He did a role similar to it in Summer in Time, and, oh, God, yeah, it's a great call. You said this character's supposed to be an intellectual, but Uh Rob Lowe plays this character later on? (laughs) Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's going to be, that'll be very, I've never seen that either, but I feel like he is the crucifix that holds this movie back for me. I think Mm -hmm. if you cast a stronger actor or someone who, at the very least, I don't really like this guy. And I don't know if that's the intent or not. He's not an outright villain, but he's also not this broken firecracker like Jack Torrance was. I find it impossible to get a read on him throughout this entire movie. And when he has to get more emotional towards the end, I don't think he conveys it very well. Ben's turned down for a room, and he asks about the Marsden house right before leaving. We cut to inside the antique store as Crockett tells Stryker that he's done a great job with the place as Stryker expresses gratitude toward the help Crockett gave him in getting the store and house. We cut to Mears as we learn that, again, he's a writer, (laughs) something King knows a little bit about. He comes across somebody we'll be getting to in the next couple years, Matt, Bonnie Bedelia, as she's playing Susan Norton here. Now here she's exactly as she is in the book. She is here just to be the love interest and little else. That's her one note. For three hours. I am attracted to you, and I can't explain why. This stranger, who clearly is slightly older than her, and I get the implication that she's supposed to be a college student. I mean, she's still living with her parents. So it comes off as creepy, point one. It's kind of the the scariest thing in this movie, you ask me. And really, I think one of the things that hurts this movie is the casting outside of maybe two people. For something that was... Big deal, reputable director, reputable production. I kind of wish they got stronger actors because the movie fleshes out this town and the inhabitants before shit hits the fan. I kind of wish you cast people who could endear me more as the lead. I think a lot of the supporting actors are good, but boy, these two are just freaking holy water and fire because they don't attract each other. No, zero chemistry, too. I kind of like seeing Bonnie Bedia, though. Like, the only yeah. thing I know her from whatsoever <laughs> is Die Hard. Mm-hmm. And so to see her here a little younger, she's unbelievably attractive. I don't see these two together. Like, there seems to be too much of a gap there. I don't believe in the chemistry. But that, yeah, I don't know, kind of a king thing at this point. But I don't mind Bonnie Bedia, and I kind of like seeing her here. It's the one person going in, I'm like, hey, I know you. The problem is also Bonnie Bedelia's in Needful Things. Yeah, she'll show up later in this retrospective. That's right. Ben sees that coincidentally she's reading one of his books, which would definitely get me talking to her as well. This is from the book, by the way. But it's weird because in the book it does come off as more of a coincidence. Here it's almost like she grabbed this book knowing that he was in town, hoping that he would talk to her. We learn that Susan teaches art and is actually a fan of his work. Also, that she doesn't exactly have a boyfriend and that Ben's wife has died. So Ben's wife has just died, yet here he is hitting on this college chick. Ben, once again, is shown looking right up into the windows of the Marsden house and is then approached by Stryker, who just tells him, Good evening, before walking off. (laughs) (laughs) We then see Ben drive by the two we saw earlier, and we realize that they are in the midst of an affair as a homeless guy named Weasel watches and takes a swig of whiskey. We cut to Coley Sawyer crushing a beer can as Bonnie comes home, and he looks at her funny and says, bring me a beer. Now, it should be said, the book of this, boys, there are way more characters than what we have here. A lot of these characters in this movie are condensed for this movie, or they are combined two characters into one. I'm glad that it's condensed. I don't know, do you think it could have used a little bit more condensing? Or is it the fact that we're seeing this small town? This is something that we'll definitely see more of when King gets to the stand and stuff like that. What are you guys feeling about all the characters we're seeing here? For me, I think either we needed more characters and this needs to be a four, four and a half hour, or we need to keep it how it is, but we need to cut 40 minutes out of this runtime. I don't think the characters we have populate this miniseries at this length. No, because they are straightforward to a fault. They have one trait that you could recognize them by. What a surprise, you have an alcoholic. Literally take a drink yourself, because Stephen King's starting to... (laughs) Already at this point, we're already starting to beat that dead horse. And also, almost everything gets resolved as far as the other characters. Like, either they become vampires, or they they die, or they go away. Except for this, him and his cheating wife, we don't get a resolution for them. No. Which makes me believe they should have just cut this part, because if there's one thing this movie doesn't need, it's more time. We then see Ben at Susan's parents' house. And boy, is this awkward. What an awkward meeting this is. (laughs) 
But he comes off well as he walks Susan down the steps, and Susan lets out that she's kind of been seeing a guy named Ned Tebbit. Nice time to tell him that now. We learn that Ben's wife died two years ago and that Susan met Ned at an ad agency that she worked at. And we also learn that Ben's writing about the Marsden house and that Susan wants to go to the lake. This is all, if not good, at least efficient character work. And again, it's very loyal to the book. I'm kind of getting into this. I'm kind of getting into what these two are driving at here. Goudreau, I'm assuming that you're not with me there. Yeah, I was growing my own set of things because I wanted to take a chunk out of this runtime as I was watching it. The movie does grab me at a certain point, but it's not until the ball starts rolling down the hill. I think a lot of the setup is meandering and is, like I said, I can't talk about this enough. The fact that the acting from these two is so bad doesn't draw me in to the crux of the story. Was his wife killed by a vampire and that's why he comes back here? No. No, she dies in a car accident. Okay. The trouble I have is that Mears is such a bland character. He doesn't emote past like a level five. Like he is just so level keel on everything that it's it's hard to get a read out of him. Matt brings up a good point with what happened to his wife because it's dropped, but it doesn't matter. If he was here before, you would expect that he would know a little more about the house. This is just taking a while to get something going on. Gosh, I could watch this at two times speed and it would still be taking too long to get where we got to go. We see Ben start typing while looking at the Marsden house. I could have used more of this, actually. Like, I could have used more of seeing Ben actually feel this house as he's writing about it. Now, we don't really feel any of that while we watch this movie. Now, for a movie that's so long, I agree with you, Adam. I believe there needs to be more of this kind of stuff. Because he has the history from his mm-hmm. childhood with the house, you think they would address that earlier and more often, especially with three hours to play in. As it is, they only bring it up when he's near the house. It's like when he steps on the property, it triggers memories. Yeah. yeah, or it's a small town. You would have people that had been there before. They would know of his relationship to the house, what happened there. Just more of that. If the town doesn't want him back because of what happened, you know, maybe the house went to sleep, but evil slept while he was gone, and now it's bad. Well, shit. That, then that is literally sometimes we come back. More of that connection to the house. It's either about the town Salem's Lot, which is the title, or it's about the house. And you kind of decide which one you're going with. And this story decides that it's going to do both. It's about the town being taken over, but we keep being told that the house is a threat because it draws evil. But we don't really understand that that's where the evil's being drawn to. Crockett goes to Stryker again, and he says that he needs his help as Stryker needs help moving a valuable sideboard to the house, along with four stout padlock. We're also keeping Barlow in our minds as he just looms into the story, which I actually kind of like. They're kind of building this character up a bit. We cut to Mark Petrie giving a school performance as Ben sits down. Ben finds Susan, but he doesn't realize that Ned is just around the corner waiting for her. Ned doesn't take the news that she doesn't love him anymore too well as he just drives off. I'm sure we'll never see him again. (laughs) (laughs) We cut to Coley and Bonnie as he says goodbye to her and then takes off. Mike, meanwhile, he changed up his dog as Ned and him, they leave Coley in the cemetery as they take off. And they ruminate about just what Coley's going to do about Bonnie having an affair with Crockett. Kind of funny seeing Fred Willard in the earlier role, isn't it? For sure. We hear Faithful the dog scream in agony as we cut to her corpse in the graveyard. Ned and Mike, they prepare the cold crate for a drop-off at the Marsden house, and Ned says it just feels cold. And this scene in the book is actually, it's very well told, because you just get the feeling that there's just something in there. And I don't know if Hooper really conveys that that well. I don't know how you would do it in a TV movie. But just the ominous feeling of this. And I, and I have to say, you know, when I read this book, I got it for my birthday one year. I think it was about, I was probably 12, 13 years old. And my parents were gone. And I sat in my dad's recliner, and Adam, you remember where that recliner was, right by the back door, mm-hmm. by the screen door. And I turned the light on right there, and I started reading. And there's a certain point, and we'll get to it, where it scared me so bad, I had to shut that door, and I grabbed the blanket, and I did not even want to go upstairs. I just laid right there. <laughs> this book really did have an effect on me. I'm not sure if it's a huge favorite of mine, or it just affected me more. Because I think King will get better at this kind of stuff. Don't forget, this is only his second book, or second published book, I should say. He will get better at this kind of stuff, but just the way he outlines scary things and the way people feel about them, and it makes you feel for them, and feel like you're in that situation, this is what he does best, especially in his early work, and it really affected me. And this was one of those scenes. 
We cut to them driving the crate and we see the crate moving in the back. So we know that something foreboding is waiting to be let loose. And Hooper is really driving the suspense. Now, Matt, we've talked about Toby Hooper before. We talked about him with Texas Chainsaw Massacres 1 and 2. You're not really feeling the typical Hooper things here, are you? Well, for one thing, there's nothing in this movie that's particularly shocking from a violence standpoint, which Texas Chainsaw only hints at. That's the beauty of that first movie, for the most part. But I can see a lot of what he would do in Poltergeist here with the lighting, in particular the fog machines, a lot of long tracking shots of just the background. I think he does a very good job of building up tension. And when the scares happen, I think they all hit. And I think that's why I prefer the second half of this miniseries considerably more than the first half, is that for being scary television, I think oftentimes it's very effective. Adam, as somebody who is not familiar with Toby Hooper's stuff, are you feeling the suspense at this point? I'm not feeling suspense, but I understand that they want me to. I see the crumbs there, and they're hoping that this trail is going to lead me through some creepy woods that I'm going to be scared by. And what I get is just hey, I see where you want me to go. I see what you want me to feel. I'm not feeling the suspense or scaredness out of it. I think there's a good story there. I just don't think they're doing a good job of telling it. We see that Bonnie is preparing for Crockett's arrival as Mark is rehearsing for the school pageant. We then cut to Ben having breakfast with Jason Burke, who in the book is Matt Burke, which I don't know why they would change that name, but whatever. And we're hearing a story at the time that Ben walked to the Marsden house, and this is why he is writing about it. He had a scary experience with ghosts up there before running off, and then Ben asked Jason if a house can be evil within the walls without anything having to do with who's living there. He says that an evil house attracts evil men, to which Jason asks if an evil house can attract evil men, why did it attract Ben? So this is something I really like what they're building, but again... The fact that this movie is without commercials, it's three hours. With commercials, it was four hours. It was a two-night event on CBS back in the day. They are not going with, why is Ben attracted to this if it attracts evil men? That is something that I, you would really think they would build on. Well, they, because they never show him being a bad person. He never does anything overly sinister. I thought the twist was going to be that he murdered his wife. And mm. that's why the house, quote-unquote, draws him to bad people. But this is a setup that really goes nowhere. Uh, It's one of my bigger disappointments. I thought they were building to something. Like maybe he was part vampire or he's related to this line of vampires. Just something that would make the house attract to him. But it doesn't give you an answer. And because of that, I would have just not done it at all. Yeah, I completely agree. I thought maybe, was he going to be reincarnated? Was he going to be a Renfield and he didn't know that he was in service of these vampires? That's why he was being drawn to this house. Did he escape and he was being pulled back by some supernatural power? The potential is there, but it doesn't happen. And that's the frustrating part. I'm seeing this house being built. I see the framework going up, but they never put the furniture in to finish it. I am liking the cuts that Hooper's doing here as we're seeing a mask take up the screen right after we're seeing how creeped out Mike and Ned are about the crate in their truck. This is pretty good cuts here. So what, this, do they ever say what's in this cold? Well, this is Barlow. Oh, oh, he's physically in there. Yeah, he's physically in the crate. I don't understand how I didn't put that together. Maybe because the movie doesn't <laughs> explicitly tell you. They go to the crate, which is now all the way against the cab of the truck, and they edge it out of the truck. Meanwhile, Ralphie and Danny Glick, they're walking home, and we see Danny engulfed by a shadow. Again, very creative shooting by Hooper here. Mike and Ned, they finally deliver the crate and start driving away. As we cut to Coley watching Crockett walk into his and Bonnie's house and shut off the light. We cut to Danny getting home and collapsing, and he looks just completely out of it. We see Stryker. He takes out a small body bag and puts it on the table. He opens it up, and there's the body of Ralphie Glick. So, again, King's not above killing kids, is he? No, he's not. And I have to admire the production of this for not dancing around that. For, you know, this is public television, so it's not like an HBO where you have no standards and practices. But I have to say, there's one thing that I have to praise this movie most for. It's James Mason, Mm -hmm. because he is, was a big get at the time. He is sort of of the Marlon Brando ilk, where he is the actor's actor. And he does not go... As campy as you think this role would require if someone like a Vincent Price played it, I think there's a deliberate menace, there is a calmness without him going too far, and I think he plays it so well. Anytime he's on screen, I feel like I, I'm re-engaged with the movie. 
Yeah, all signs point to Hooper and the entire cast. All they talk about is how much Mason loved being in this movie and being on screen. And this role was a really fun thing for him to do. They said that he really reveled in it. Yeah, I think Mason does a pretty damn good job. When he's on screen, you're captivated. You know something is going on, something is going down, and it's not good. He's that pre-evil. He's the sense of foreboding. He is the evil that comes before. There's a great medicine that, and he plays it really, really well. Like Matt said, for 70s television, so have to do with standards and practices, FCC and all that, to open a body bag of a child on TV, it's still today really effective and a just great shot. Well, speaking of the standards and practices, that would bring us to the next scene because we then see Coley barge into his house with a shotgun. And this was one of the two scenes I remember from the first time I watched it. I remember reading the censors did not want Coley pointing the shotgun in his mouth. That was a big fight Hooper had because in the book, that's what he does. Here, they kind of situate it so that it's pointed a little bit at his head, but you only see it for a split second. Big, big fight that Hooper had to have. I could see that because I do think it's kind of a wow, I can't believe they're doing that kind of moment. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. not a surprise. We're hearing Bonnie try lying her way out of what's going on as Coley takes Crockett out of the room and compliments his shorts. Coley points the gun and he demands that Crockett hold the gun to his face. He tells him to close his eyes as he pulls the trigger and we learn that there are no bullets in the first place. Larry runs outside and we see a hand appear right in front of his face. So now we know he's gone. And then we are hearing Coley just beat the hell out of Bonnie. This is intense stuff to have on 1979 TV, boys. Man, it's... Going back on it now, and yeah, I know times have changed, yada yada, but it's, I don't know, the 70s TV abuse of women, it makes me so angry every time, and this is another one of them where I'm just, I fucking hate that it was ever allowed. Yeah. They also go out of their way to justify it because she's the one who instigates all the infidelity. Yeah. And then she throws Fred Bullard under the bus, so they double down on it. It's almost like, yeah, she deserves to get beaten. Yeah. Just terrible line of thinking. And it can't be said often enough, too, that King was not very adept at writing women at this time either. We talked about it with The Shining way back when. We're We're going to talk about it here. The way he writes women just is not very complimentary. It's not. It's also not exclusive to King, and it's 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 definite. Susan, meanwhile, is paranoid about how Ben's going to react to what he saw that day, but he seems pretty cool with everything as he hears a commotion. He gets up and walks over, and he sees Crockett in a car, and he ends up leaning right on the car horn. We then cut to, okay, this scene is a scene I remember vividly from my original reading of the book. This is just, oh my god. This kid coming to this window, tapping it, asking Danny to join him, frightened the fuck out of me. I watched it on TV, and even when I read it in the book, it's just it scares me every single time. And for a split second, you can see the rig that Hooper built, because Hooper did do the, the effects for this scene. And what he did was he did use the fog machine, as Matt pointed out earlier, but he set it in reverse when you put it on film. So just everything looks so disjointed. This made me close the door and, and again, sleep downstairs that night. This is scary stuff for me as a kid. I think it's creepy. I think it's effective. I think this right here is pretty dang well done. It draws me back in, and I'm, I'm what the fucking, like, right here, because, yeah, I, I think it's done quite well. It's done so well that they do it three times in this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> True. The first one is the best, though, because the, the vampire kid doesn't talk in the first mm-hmm. one, which is what I like the most. Mm-hmm. As someone who had not seen this movie before, I must admit the third one was spoiled for me because Shudder did a hundred scariest movie moments and it was on there. And yeah, you can see the rig and all that kind of stuff, but context is everything. And I think for what this is, this is about as elevated, no pun intended, as you would get. It should also be said that these contact lenses that these kids had to wear, they could only be worn for 15 minutes at a time. So imagine how long that took to film. (laughs) We cut to Ben talking to the police. Hey, it's the guy from Cat's Eye. (laughs) As they're loading Crockett's body onto the ambulance, and in true horror police fashion, they don't believe him. Yeah, you gotta stay in town. Don't go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Susan comes home, and her dad has to leave because Danny Glick collapsed, and Ben realizes all this started happening since he came to town, and in his mind, he awakened the evil that lurks within it. This is my problem, though. He's not connected to this. This would have happened regardless of him arriving. Yep, exactly what my point is, too. It either is or it isn't, and if it isn't, he needs to stop thinking it is, or he needs to realize it's not him, but he can stop it, but none of that is there. It's like an outline that never gets brought together. 
Mike finds the corpse of his dog as a search is going on in the field and then finds part of Stryker's black suit. The sheriff stops by the shop and once again we're hearing about the upcoming arrival of Barlow and Stryker asks if there's any way he can help find the town's missing boy. Then we get a really weird scene that uses chow a lot. This scene really threw me off where <laughs> we're seeing Stryker just say chow and then they, they say it to each other like three or four times. Well, it's weird that it's a, a quote-unquote gag because they do it in two separate scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Ben is talking to Susan's dad about the Marston house as Susan comes in ready for the date. Meanwhile, Danny is again visited by Ralphie, this time in the hospital. Little hint of the Jaws theme here, too, by the way. Ralphie rises above and goes right for Danny's neck. And again, seeing a vampire bite the neck in 1979, pretty scary stuff. Yeah, if you have not seen the Hammer movies. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's what Hooper was trying his best to avoid. He didn't really want to evoke the thoughts of the Hammer movies, and we're going to see a big change that he's going to be making here in a little bit, but that's what you would have known in the 70s. By the 70s, those Hammer movies were the biggest thing. Frank Langella, as good as he was, I wasn't a big fan of what he did with Dracula, and they're trying to do a little something different here, and King did say, when he wrote this book, he wanted to modernize a Bram Stoker's Dracula for a quote-unquote modern time in the 70s. I don't think the name Stryker being similar to Stoker is a coincidence. So Stryker shows back up at the sheriff's station with his two black suits, and he puts together that he's under suspicion of the boy's disappearance because he's new and different. Susan tells Ben that she has a job interview in Boston and she would like him to be there, but he's going to stick around for Danny Glick's funeral. Why he's sticking around for this kid's funeral? Who knows? <laughs> Keep up appearances, I guess. <laughs> yeah. At the funeral, the boy's mother collapses. We then see Mike start burying the boy as a gust of wind goes by. He jumps down, opens the coffin, and then gets bitten by Danny. Again, Why would you open that casket? Because he's drawn to it. There's something about the vampire lore you're just drawn to. Yeah, that makes sense. Ben gets off the phone with Susan, and then hears that Ned Tebbets was around threatening him. Mark's parents, meanwhile, argue over how Mark is handling the deaths of the Glick boys as his dad goes to see him get out of a pair of handcuffs and then talks to him about why Mark's so interested in monsters and fantasy, to which Mark says it's the same reason why he's interested in numbers and accounting. Okay, this right here is when I, I'm stopping on my head is, is I'm scratching it a little bit. One, Garrett, I'm glad you got yourself in this movie as Mark. <laughs> <laughs> right. But they have this funeral and the quick boys in it. From here forward, isn't one missing, one in the hospital, but suddenly we're having a funeral and both Glick boys are dead? I feel like there's something that got missed. Because one is missing, but suddenly we're just having a funeral for both boys. I thought the funeral was just for Danny, actually. Okay. I, th I thought from here on out they talked that they're both Ralphie. dead, but I may have missed it. Okay. Ralphie. The police go over just how many Barlows exist, and then Ben meets up with Jason at a restaurant as Mike collapses on the table and says that he just feels sick. Meanwhile, Mark wakes up and is visited by Danny who begs Mark to open the window because he's his friend and he commands it. Mark doesn't do it, though. Instead, he grabs a cross and tells Danny to go away. But this really shakes him up. This kid would have got along very nicely with the two Corys from the Lost Boys because he knows all <laughs> horror tropes. Yes, and Schumacher would take this floating vampire bit and put it in Lost Boys, too. A series, I, the more we talk about it, boys, the more yeah. I kind of want to get to. Yeah, that is Michael outside the window. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll just add some more feathered hair and jewelry. <laughs> and a greased-up shirtless sax player. <laughs> Mark's dad walks in and asks him if he wants anything as he called out in his sleep. Jason, meanwhile, sees that Mike has two marks on his neck. Ben continues to type as we cut back to Jason, who's been having restless dreams. He calls Ben and tells him to come over. Ben asks for a crucifix as he goes to Jason's, and they check on Mike, who's still sleeping. Jason says that the window wasn't closed when they left, and Ben feels that Mike doesn't have a pulse. So, one thing that I do like, and I don't know if this is in the book, because I haven't read it. I like that King is treating vampires, it's almost like a zombie epi epidemic in a town. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, that's like, yeah, people show symptoms, they get hospitalized, and they have to spread it from one person to another. I think that's a cool way to do a, a vampire story at this time. Yep, that is straight from the book. Meanwhile, the grand opening of the antique store is going on. God, this antique store just plays nothing in this movie, does it? <laughs> Not in this one. <laughs> ben shows up and tells Stryker about the weird things that have happened in the house that Stryker resides in, and he asks him if evil can be inherent in the house. 
Stryker puts together that Ben's the writer writing about the house, and he tells Ben that he'd enjoy Barlow when he arrives, and vice versa. Again, just really building up this Barlow character. But building it up almost as if they have a history, which is not a thing. So this antique store, they should have sold off about 45 minutes of this runtime. Ned is down waiting, and he attacks Ben, telling him that he stole his girl. Bill Norton tells Ben that Ned's been arrested, and then tells him to take it easy, but all Ben asks for is a crucifix. Jason starts reading a book on vampires when he is shaken by a noise coming from upstairs. He makes his way there and spots Mike in a rocking chair. Mike tells him to look at him. As he approaches, Jason raises the crucifix and forces him out the window. A scene, again, that really scared me as a kid, actually. All the stuff with the vampires is great. I agree. If there was a way, and I say if as if it's you know impossible, I think it's very realistic. And why I'm curious about this new remake is that I think there is a way to condense this three-hour movie into two and still retain the same beats, the same tension, and the same result. Maybe you could tweak some stuff to make it more distinctive. But, you know, the vampires have been done so many different ways. Anytime they show up, they do different things with them throughout the movie. It's not just them biting people for three hours. We're actually seeing them as convincers, as manipulators, and all the different ways that they operate. Once we get the vampire, you know, and the vampires we get, I'm brought in at that moment. They suck me in, no pun intended. So I, I, I wish we had a little more of that. Like Max said, I like the way that it feels like a zombie outbreak happening, that we get the little teases here and there of somebody being tired and weak, and it's not so instantaneous. So the groundwork that's being laid, I think, is done well. Jason starts having heart issues, and he reaches for the phone as he collapses on a bed, and heart sounds flood the soundtrack. If this was the remake, he would have had a life alert bracelet on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ned is the one who was visited by Barlow, and our long-standing threat is finally revealed. Okay. Hey, I jumped out of my seat when this happened, and I'm a grown-ass man. <laughs> Granted, I was watching this at like 1 o'clock in the morning, because that's when I have time to myself now. <laughs> and I almost I almost woke my one of my kids up, because I audibly yelled, like, Jesus! Or, or, it wow. got me. Like, I've seen that still image of what Barlow looks like. But context is everything, and they make you wait, but it pays off. It should be said that when this book was originally released, it had a black cover, and that was pretty much it. Meaning you did not know that the threat was vampires. Now, about 50 or so pages in, you know what it is, but you didn't really know what this movie was about. When you rented this movie, though, there is a huge shadow of Barlow on that cover, so you know exactly what it's about. And it should also... Be- just for the record, you know, Salem's Lot, you think of witches. Like yeah. Massachusetts, it's actually short for Jerusalem's Lot. Uh-huh. Uh, not that this movie mentions that. I did some digging. And the book, at least the copy I have, as it stares at me and mocks me, it's saying, look at me, read me, uh, across <laughs> the room, is the house. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a vampire. Yeah. And so this portrayal of Barlow was a big issue that King had with this movie. I should say the only issue King had with this TV movie. Because he's always got one. Yeah. Well, in the book, he is more of the suave Dracula type. That is why it is a retelling of Dracula, because he made him that suave, sexy, very, very demented, yet good-looking character. In the book, it's implied that Barlow and Stryker are lovers by the whole town around them, because why else would two guys move in together? Why else would they be business partners? Why else would they want this land? Why else would they move here from England to be here? So this is the big issue. Now, Matt, you said it was effective for you. Adam, what about you, sir? You probably knew about this, or did you? I had seen this pop up, much like Matt said, in so many different lists and such that I was waiting for it. It didn't get me didn't really care for the look of it either. I thought the vampires up to this point, I liked the way they looked. I liked the makeup. I liked the fangs. Like, I liked everything with it. This reveal, eh. Like, I get what they were doing to end night one, but it didn't grab me. I wasn't a fan, to be critical. I don't like that they just took the Nosferatu design Mm -hmm. and just upped it. I kind of wish they just made him look like the other vampires with the yellow eyes and fangs. But I understand King's problem. But I also understand Toby Hooper... Look at all the Draculas we had at this point. Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, Frank Langella. Almost all of them were handsome, suave, attractive guys. So making them actually a monster, I was fine with, but I don't like that he's a mute. 
He's not really a character. He's just the big boss they have to kill at the end. Yeah, it should be said, too, the guy they got to play this role, he had a deformity, and they revolved the makeup around that deformity. So I like what they did here only because what Hooper said in that interview I read was that this was actually producer Richard Colbert's idea because at this point we've seen vampires, but we needed to see something different. And this movie, you guys have said, I mean, we're seeing a lot of the buildup here. We're not seeing any monsters. Here we're finally getting a monster. And I think that's what they were really going for when they went for this look. I'm kind of with you guys and King. I kind of think that we should have probably seen that Suave vampire. And you know what? If I know James Wan, he's going to go for that Suave look that King initially wanted and wrote in his book. It is startling, but I think we have James Mason to do all the talking. So I think in that way they covered their tracks. Yeah, Stricker is Bobby Heenan to Barlow's Andre the Giant, where he does all the talking. Or, you know, better yet, he, he's the Paul Bearer to his Undertaker. I think that's more appropriate. <laughs> Perfect Christ. We see that the Glick mother has collapsed, saying that Danny tells her that he's her baby. Oof. We cut to Ben checking out the hospital as Susan tells him that Ned died of pernicious anema last night in town jail, as did Danny Glick's mom. Ben begs Susan to go back to Boston so she can be away from the darkness taking over the town. We then cut to Ben visiting Jason in the hospital, and then he and Susan head to Father Callahan at the church. Now, this character plays a huge part in the book, and he's in the, what, five minutes, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like, he has a part a in the finale yeah, in the he's, book. He's not even a character. He's just the, yeah. all right, we're dealing with classic vampires. We need a priest. Exactly. And the exorcist is very popular around this time. Find a guy who looks like Jason Miller. Ben begs Susan to have Hawthorne put around the house as vampires are multiplying in the city. We then see something that Hooper would be doing a few years later in Poltergeist as the house that the Petries live in starts acting possessed. And glass goes everywhere as Barlow shows up. <laughs> okay. I was going with the frightening aspects of this movie. I really was. I'm more with the mood than you guys are. But that mood is completely destroyed when Barlow shows up and does the Three Stooges noggin knocker on these two parents and kills them. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm glad you said it because I'm, I'm totally with you. <laughs> I could not believe what I just see. <laughs> that this is how they decide. Who doesn't go, uh, um, yeah, we're going to do it. A- Take two, and we're going to do this a little bit different. Just to do the headbutt knocker, I, I, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> yeah, when the son's like, I think they're dead, I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Stryker shows up and tries bargaining with the priest until Mark's let loose. This causes Mark to point out Barlow and say, I'm going to kill you before running off. Bill tells Ben that Danny's mom has the same symptoms as the others before leaving the autopsy room to check on his family. Ben makes a homemade crucifix out of two tongue depressors as Marjorie wakes up and looks Ben's way. She hisses as Bill walks in, and then he puts the cross on her forehead, which makes her disappear. (sighs) Don't like that, huh? I love the idea. And what I put down here is I want to care about this, but its execution is laughable. There is a really good idea there. But the way that she disappears, the way that it's just, man, no. So I'm going to get nostalgic for my generation because there's a very specific thing I thought of when they turn on the fog machine and she dissolves. There's an episode of Goosebumps, Welcome to Dead House, where when the townspeople who have basically become zombies are exposed to sunlight, they evaporate into water vapor, basically. But it's the same effect of we just turn on a fog machine and a fan and say, action? It's, I'll send you the shot. It's on Netflix. You can find it. But it's literally that exact same effect right down to the compositing. I thought it was incredibly hokey. There's an idea here, but the mom is also not really a character, so why should I feel something when she dies? Ben says that he learned they need to get to Barlow during the day and that he must have wandered the planet for centuries looking for victims. He then tells Susan that Marjorie has also become a vampire and then tells her that she must leave town before it happens to her, too. So he keeps putting this warning out there. Honey, you got to leave. But she doesn't. Over and over Uh and over. Each idea 
is so slow in getting thought out throughout this thing. I feel like I'm hypnotized and doing that slow motion walk that a vampire makes you do sometimes. It's just, <laughs> let's get it going. Holy shit. It's like a five-minute talk to be like, hey, you should leave town. No, I think I'm going to stay here with you. Okay, we get it. Let's go. Yeah, I was like Dracula screaming for my own Renfield to give this woman a brain. But Susan ends up going to where Ben's staying and finds that Eva's also been having dreams and she's turning into a vampire as well. This causes Susan to drive to the house herself. And she spots Mark hopping the roof to go inside. She follows him in and feels a wind rustling past her as she walks to a door. And Hooper's doing some nifty camera work here as he films this so that we're paying attention to Susan and not Mark roaming around upstairs. That was a really nice shot. I like some of the stuff he's doing here. I just don't understand why Susan feels the need to be at this fucking house. Is it like this in the book? Yes. Okay, then the problem's with the book. Yeah, she needs to be with him. They need to be going in together. The split up is... Like, I feel like I walked out of the room, came back, and missed something. But I, I am going to agree with you that Hooper's way of shooting it, that Mark is in the background doing things, that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. And even if you are paying attention, you want to know what's going on and what he's doing. Like, I really like the way that that is shot inside the house. But this yeah, should right. feel like a haunted house or a horror house that they just got into. And it just looks like, okay, there was a fire 20 years ago they never cleaned up from. Yeah, it's got all cobwebs. Stricker has to live here, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After walking past some taxidermied animals, she walks upstairs and runs right into Mark. As Mark heads to the noise he hears, he collapses right in front of Susan, and there's Stryker, who welcomes her and ties Mark up. I, I wanted him to say, good evening. <laughs> <laughs> we got that earlier. <laughs> ben tries convincing the sheriff that vampires roam the city, and instead of helping, he just gives him his gun before taking off. Later, Gator. <laughs> <laughs> It's the one person that did the right thing. Yeah, you're not kidding. (laughs) Ben and Bill, they get some holy water and make their way to the Marston house. Ben hesitates going in as Mark runs out. They go inside as Bill heads to a door. And out comes Stryker, who pushes him into a bunch of spikes. And Actually, no, this is into a bunch of antlers. Yes. Animals, which, wow. I think we saw this in Chainsaw, didn't we? Well, at the very least, it was a meat hook. Yeah. Yeah, but back then it was done for a fraction of the budget and looked about a hundred times better. I can't <laughs> believe how bad this shot is for as good as everything's been inside the house. This shot is horrendous. Ben shoots him a number of times before Stryker collapses on the stairs. Kind of wish this is how Wendy handled Jack in The Shining. Okay, <laughs> so he shoots him and it feels like that has no effect. It feels like he's superhuman at this point or otherworldly. But then he just keeps it up and suddenly the bullets matter and kill him. And I'm just, I don't know. It's a weird decision. Either they hurt him or he doesn't have to unload the clip to kill him. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, you hit the big boss in the weak spot. And that's what killed him. (laughs) Yeah, because he's clearly got some measure of strength because he picks him up and impales him. Mm -hmm. And it takes like five or six bullets. And even then there's a 10 second delay before he kills over and dies. Mark goes way too fast and falls off the stairs and twists his ankle. They head in even further to look for Susan and Barlow. Mark finds a door to the root cellar, but like a true klutz, drops the holy water. Fucking kids. Like plastic bottles, dumbass. <laughs> he knocks the lock loose, and they head to a coffin, which they pull out as Mark notices that the sun has gone down. They open the coffin, and there's Barlow. Ben tells Mark not to look at him as he throws him to the ground. A sort of fight ensues inside the coffin as vampires awaken behind Mark, and I did like that shot as well. Oh, the vampires crawling, like when you oh. see the shadows behind, yes. and they're about crawling, that is a great shot. Mm-hmm. Although they do kind of, Matt, is it just me, or do they kind of look like evil dead zombies more than anything else? Well, yeah, because they're locked behind that door, and yeah. they're crawling. Yeah, I can see that, but... And, I I was thinking of sometimes they come back again. Yeah, good point. Ben finally gets the spike into Barlow, and he disintegrates as Mark locks the door behind him. Still no signs of Susan, though, as they light the house on fire, and Ben asks Susan to forgive him. The fire roars through the house as the two drive away. Ben stops and still feels guilty about Susan. He says they will purify Salem's lot as the others go on the hunt for them. The flames continue as screams are heard and glass is broken. 
We then cut to where we were at the beginning of the film, way back about two hours and 50 minutes ago, <laughs> in Guatemala, two years later, as Mark and Ben, they see that they've been found again, as the holy water glows blue, and they find Susan. She cries for Ben, tells him that she loves him, as she opens her vampire eyes and asks him to kiss her. He bends down and stakes her right in the heart. And by the way, he didn't use a stake on that bitch. He fucking just drove it right into her. <laughs> he, he didn't have a mallet. And it's basically ending a pet cemetery if he succeeded. That's what I thought of. Now it helps that I've seen that before seeing yeah. this. Because I know pet cemetery is written well after this. But that whole thing of the wife coming back and someone may or may not dying as a result. Mm-hmm. I dug this. I like her coming back. I like the way it's done. I like this last little moment. I like this taking a whole lot more than I liked Arnold being staked. I just, I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know how hard it was to get that damn stake into him, but it seemed to take forever. Mm-hmm. This feels a whole lot better. I like this as an ending to it, though, because this is that classic romantic part of vampirism, you know? One of the two that change, that want the other one to come with them, and of course, this is how you can end a vampire story. He stakes her right in the heart as he tells Mark that there will be others. They head out, and credits roll on Salem's Lot, boys, 1979. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Salem's Lot? Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Oh, boy. I had no idea what to score this when I was done, because I realized that three hours is a long commitment, and I'll feel that nine times out of ten. But what was here, as far as a vampire story, I thought it was told well. There was just too much of it. The scares were very effective, but I thought it was way too slow at certain points. And the second part of this is considerably better than the first part. To me, this is like Titanic, where I only watch the second VHS. I think I'd probably do the same for this if I was a younger kid. It's well-directed, and I don't know what the budget was or anything like that, but for what this was envisioned as, I could see the side of the studio initially of, why don't we do this as a feature-length movie? Because I think two hours you could... I would hope you would do the same story and get the same chills and all that good stuff, just with better actors. If the leads were better, and if there weren't so many plot points that seemed like they were setups but don't ultimately have any payoffs, I'd be a little bit kinder. In the pantheon of Stephen King, I thought this was good, not great. Certainly better than a lot of the miniseries we'll be covering down the road, and this pistol whips the shit out of The Shining. But I can't call it great. It's good, and there's certainly scenes that I think are really well done, but... For a long commitment, I wouldn't marry. I think I also wouldn't just F on the first date and run away. I'd see how this goes, but I don't see a long-term relationship. It's a 6 on 10 for me. 6 on 10 from Goudreau. Adam, what about you, sir? So, as this movie finishes, it says, there will be others. Ugh, don't I know it. (laughs) (laughs) But for this one here, it's a miniseries of of anything with Stephen King. Miniseries has been my bag. This one, though, I feel like it would benefit from not being that format. There is a good story somewhere in here but it's not what got put on the screen for this there is good moments there is some good acting there is some good shots there is some good storytelling but overall it's not fulfilling there are some moments that are just freaking blood draining tiring to get through and that's unfortunate there's some of the same beats that get repeated over and over, like fleeing this town or why are we in this town that never get resolved. Having an affair discussion that derails this movie and has no matter by the end of it or even in that moment is just unnecessary. The thing is, it comes down to them wanting to do a miniseries out of it. So, of course, they're going to pad it. But I got to judge it based on that. There's a good story in here. It's just not here. And that's sad. I'm intrigued, though, because I think this can be done better. I don't think the story is bad. I just think the execution in a three-hour format wasn't what this was designed for. But, like I say, there's some dang good moments in it. David Sowell's Mears is just the wrong person. He's just boring as hell. James Mason as Straker just absolutely, you know, steals the show when he's on screen. Bonnie Padilla's fine. She's cute in that role. And the idea of you just being terrified by what's going on in this town is a good one, though poorly executed. We've seen a lot worse. We're going to see a lot better. So this one to me is kind of right down the middle of Stephen King, and I'm going to score this down the middle as well with a 5. 5 out of 10 from Adam Bunch. For kind of being against each other 
for most of this podcast, me and Matt pretty much saw the same movie, which is really weird to say. I find a lot of the scares in this to be very effective, especially for 1970s TV. You're not going to see too much 1970s TV be as effective as what Hooper was able to accomplish with this film. And I think in the place that he was, he needed this. After Eaten Alive came out and was really a flop, he needed something like this. And I think he showed what he does well in this instance, is mood. This movie is based on how much you can take the mood of the piece. And you know what? For the most part, I can. Although, if I were to watch the first half of this movie in 1979 and not be familiar with that book, I don't know if I'd come back for the second half. I agree with both of you where I think a lot of the good parts of this movie are very effective. But the first night of this, the first hour and a half, two hours, it drags. And when you have a lot of inconsequential things that happen with these characters, it doesn't make it feel like it was paid off, especially with that couple and the affair, which is paid off in the book. I'm not going to say how, because we might get to it in 2004's version. I haven't seen 2004's version all the way through yet, so that's some, that's a discussion we'll have to save. But for the most part, I'm in agreement with Matt. I want to go ahead and give this a six. I think it is well worth it if you like 1970s dark moody pieces. But I agree with both of you in that I don't think it's the best of Stephen King's adapted works. Stephen King himself really does like it, except what they did with Barlow. I agree with both of you where I kind of think that Barlow is effective, but I would like to see what he would be as a suave character that King originally envisioned, and we might get that in, if not 2004, we'll definitely get it in Juan's version. I'd be willing to put money on it. Okay, all that being said, before we get to 2004, we have one more movie to get to, and that is 1987's Return to Salem's Lot. I will go ahead and say, I saw this movie one time. I rented it one time. I have almost zero memory of it. In fact, I don't even know if I actually made it all the way through it. Adam, what are you expecting next week when we get to Return to Salem's Lot? Oh, boy. Um, I'm assuming that it takes place in Salem's Lot. I, uh, I'm betting there's a house and some vampires. And other than that, I have no idea what it could be. Unless it was vampires trying to get payback for this. I, oh, boy. I, I'm curious. I'm really curious as to what it could be. But boy, I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Matt, what about you? So I'm excited because this will probably bite me in the ass, knowing it's a Stephen King sequel. The names Larry Cohen and Michael Moriarty have me very excited because they make both fascinating and oftentimes very enjoyable pieces of cinema. <laughs> so I am curious to see what they can do with a concept about vampires. But if I'm wrong and it sucks, I won't be surprised. Larry Cohn turned in a script that was rejected by the makers of this movie. And that is a big reason why we get next week's movie. But I'll get into that story when we get to it. Boys, thank you so much for joining me on this tread through Salem's Lot until next week, when we get to Return to Salem's Lot, you'll podcast with the dead, teacher. Thanks, gentlemen. There's a presence in that house. I don't know if you can feel it. Oh, I can feel it. I felt it before when I was... A boy, and I went inside. I thought it was me. I thought it was some manifestation of my own fear. It wasn't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. I'll never forget it. Please join us next week for an entirely new review. Evil comes from inside of all of us. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. They were very close friends. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. This is a good town, a good community. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. You're sure it wasn't a dream? Edited by Garrett. I didn't do anything wrong. Voiceovers by Adam. If we burn them out, they'll have nowhere to hide.
The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Nothing to sink your teeth into. See you around, neighbor. Around, around what? Yeah, around. You and I can have long discussions. We'll have heated debates deep into the night. Uh, Matt, you are so lucky you're not having to do any of this fucking homework. God damn it. <laughs> I did my penance earlier this year. I, I know you did. I had to navigate Pirates 3, for God's sake. You did. Yeah, you're right. You're definitely right about that. You want to do, do Philip K. Dick? <laughs> do those plots? <laughs> uh, I could. I, we'll see. I'll just All get right. a whole slate before I commit to it. Yeah, right. All right. Maybe Boys. We'll, if, sorry. If you guys, I, had a, I had a Dick fan joke there. I'll let it go. <laughs> of course you did. Because we, we're in our 40s and we act like idiots. Oh, um, child. Ben Mears makes his way in, saying that he needs a place to stay for a bit. Now, this oh, guy mean, has played... Go ahead. Sorry. You mean Needful Things is opening up here? In- we cut to inside the antique store as Crockett tells Barlow that... I'm sorry, he tells... Um, Stricker. Stricker, thank you. He tells Stricker that he's done... He, Stricker, that he's done a great job with the place. <laughs> kind of funny seeing Fred Ward in, a, in an early role, isn't it? Oh, Fred, Will- Fred Willard? Yeah. Phil, yeah. Fred Willard. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Kind of funny seeing Fred Willard in, the, in a role, in this earlier role, isn't it? <laughs> Matt, as somebody who's not too familiar with Toby Hooper's stuff, are you feeling the suspense at this point? Adam? I'm sorry, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I know Matt's familiar with it. <laughs> um, I get what they're... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yep. Adam, as somebody who is not familiar with Toby Hooper's stuff, are you feeling the suspense at this point? He's not really a character. He's just the big boss they have to kill at the end. Goddamn, the airport is way busy this time. I'm sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, it should be said, too, that... Susan beg or Ben... I'm sorry. Ben begs Susan... To and the Exorcist is very popular around this time. So find the guy who looks like the priest from that movie, not Max von Sydow, the other one. <laughs> Father, uh, oh, was it, was it Father Karen? Father Karras. Father Karras. Find the guy who looks like Jason Miller. There you go. Ben shoots him a number of times before Stryker collapses on the stairs. Kind of wish this is how Wendy handled Jack. In the shining. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, th- sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Adam. Right, go ahead. Go ahead, because I think we're going to have the same thing. Okay, so he shoots him, and it feels like there's. 